You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 13. Today we are in Villanueva de la Serena. Oh, where are you, Daniel? Well, chaps, I am in... I better check this, actually, because I'm getting mixed up. I can't remember whether we're starting tomorrow in Don Benito. Or I mean, I thought I'd start with a nice, easy question. We're in Villanueva de la Serena. We're in the region, Richard, of... Uh, or the uh, autonomous... Or the community of Extremadura, which is very big and very empty um, and very hot. Particularly today, it's extremely hot. It has been... Well, it was hot yesterday in Andalucía, wasn't it? And I am currently enjoying a post-stage beverage and some of the staff in the cafeteria where I've taken up residence and looking at me, or have been looking at me aghast that I want to sit outside. I am in the shade, but um, they suggested that I go indoors and um, take advantage of the air conditioning, but I haven't done that. Mad dogs and Englishmen. You're, you're working your way up the country a little bit. You're about a quarter of the way up Spain at the moment. I, I look, I'm looking at some dot watching here. Um, but you're 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 working your way back up north, where I'll be joining you on Monday. Correct, Richard. We're also here with Lionel Burney. Hello, Lionel. Evening, Richard. Evening, Daniel. No, what's the weather like in Not Watford? Uh, it's a bit overcast. It's not very not been a great summer here in uh, in England, really. Lionel's also been warned not to sit outside because it's too cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm taking advantage of. I'm also drinking a, a light beverage, post stage beverage, but more of that later. How are you going to dispose of your... I presume you're drinking it out of a bottle, line line. How are you going to dispose of that bottle um, once you've finished? Because this was a bit of a topic of conversation this morning in um, Belmes. Um, it's actually a can. It's a can, but I will be disposing of it in the waste zone later. Um, I won't be just tossing it through some car window. <laughs> I say it's a topic of conversation this morning because a few people noticed that Kiel Reinen of Trek Segafredo copter. A hefty fine yesterday, or two hefty fines, in fact. Um, were they each, I think they were each 550 Swiss francs, which is sort of, only 500 Swiss francs. So a thousand euros, oh sorry, a thousand euros. A thousand Swiss francs in total. Um, we investigated why which that was. Which is about a thousand euros, as it happens. <laughs> we investigated why that was actually today, and apparently Kiel Reinen was trying to give his bottle to some of the commissaires in the in the race director's car yesterday to dispose of it but he sort of tossed the bottle through the bottle but they thought he'd done it in a bit of an aggressive way and a, a lively discussion by all accounts ensued and that was the second sort of yellow card the the second 500 swiss franc fine the fact we're talking about the weather and disposal of bidons it, it highlights that today was not the most thrilling stage but did have a thrilling uh, finale didn't it and a, a great story in the winner um in this episode we'll talk a bit about that and we're gonna listen to a bit of jack haig later on and people talking about jack haig as well as we look ahead to a really important weekend at the vuelta but before all that, do you have the tale of the etapa, please, Lionel? I do, Richard. The way you said that, we're going to listen to a bit of Jack Haig. Made, made it sound like he's some sort of bearded singer-songwriter. Some avant-gardist jazz musician. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, stage 13 of the race was the longest of the race as well. 204 kilometres to Villanueva de la Serena. And a real change of pace after the drama and kind of racecraft of the past three days. And until the very end, really. It was a it was a bit of a siesta of a day. Two non-starters this morning, Omar Friley and Max Shackman, no longer in the welter. And the very early attack was, you've guessed it, featuring the three wildcard teams from Spain. Alvaro Cuadros of Cajarral, Luis Angel Mate of Euskaltel and Diego Rubio of Burgos. And, well, they went up the road not all that far ahead of the peloton. It was only around about three minutes at its maximum, but they were out there a long time. The peloton actually had to do a bit of soft pedalling to make sure they didn't catch them. And then with just under 60 kilometres to go, there was some light crosswind action and all the Belgians went to the front. Daniel, what was going on? Well, chaps, we, we found out a little bit after the finish of what had given rise to this, and it wasn't necessarily the wind. There had been some talk before the stage of the possibility of crosswinds because it was very 
very exposed part of the country this is um, not many trees but it wasn't windy and it turns out Dimitri Clace was the first one to, to well he told me about this the Quebec next hash rider the, some of the Belgian riders had got together in the middle of the stage and they'd been chatting and they'd all sort of agreed that it was a pretty boring day. I think Seth Van Mark was one of them, Steph Kras, um, Vermeersch, De Wolf, um, Klaes was another one, Koikelera, among others. They decided that, that, that they needed to do something to add a bit of spice to this long and flat stage. So they all went to the front and tried, just for a laugh, to split the bunch, shades of the, the sort of Skelder group, the Skelder training group doing it in Paris-Nice, which caused a lot of mirth and, and interest at the time. They weren't as successful, these eight or so Belgians this time, because Clay said that well, no sooner had they moved and gone to the front than the GC teams obviously had jumped on their wheel, sensing danger. And I, I guess they should really have, have informed Jumbo Visma and Ineos and Movistar first, shouldn't they? They should have sent around a, a little communique. Well, like you say, Daniel, the wind was insignificant. It was a sort of wind, a, a personal little handheld fan. You know, that was that was about the strength of it, wasn't it? I expect you could probably do with one of those sitting there, given the, given the temperatures. And the Skelder group that you refer to, this is the bunch of Belgian professionals who train, uh, obviously, in Belgium when they're at home and often meet up or ride along the uh, bank of the Skelder Canal, which uh, links Ghent and Aldenada and uh, goes beyond those two places doesn't it but uh, yeah they were a little bit of mischief making it meant that the bunch caught the break with just under 30 kilometers to go in the end Fabio Jakobsen went for the intermediate sprint unusually he's not really been going for those especially when they've been near to the finish of stages but he won it today and that looked to be foreshadowing the finish because De Kerning Quickstep looked like they had everything under control coming into the finish. It was a really hard pace they were setting at the front, so much so that there was gaps opening up all over the place behind them. And into the final couple of kilometres, suddenly Fabio Jakobsen in the green jersey sat up and let the wheels go. Uh, reports afterwards that he had a puncture. Uh, did he or didn't he? Uh, it's not entirely clear at this point whether uh, he had a puncture or not, um, but he was out of the picture and De Kerning Quickstep had to recalibrate very quickly and give the nod to Florian Seneschal to go for the sprint. And it was Seneschal who got it ahead of Matteo Trentin and Alberto Dainese. An impressive win for Seneschal, somebody who Daniel has been tipping to win Paris-Roubaix for about the last eight years, but that was only his third professional victory. He's won a couple of smaller one-day races in Belgium, including Le Samin. Uh, behind Seneschal, as I say, the gaps had opened up and Egan Bernal, the big winner of the day among the GC riders, he gained five seconds on Primoz Roglic by making the front split. You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. And a reminder that uh, we're running a competition with Super Sapiens. You can win three months worth of the Super Sapiens sensors to monitor your blood glucose levels. If you uh, would like to have a chance of winning that fantastic prize, then go to thecyclingpodcast.com and you'll find out there how to submit uh, an audio clip of 60 seconds or less telling us how and why you would use Super Sapiens. Um, some news from Super Sapiens today uh, about the app. Um, 
You can now enable data import from Training Peaks. It can also link up directly to your Garmin device. You can see your live glucose data on your Garmin screen. And there are various other integrations with uh, well-known and popular platforms as well. So uh, things are improving all the time with Super Sapiens, and we're very grateful to them for supporting the Cycling Podcast and being our title sponsor. Now, Daniel, at the start today, we've become accustomed to our, our sort of daily rog, our um, roglitch update. What kind of mood was... Uh, well, I, I'm calling him Fun, fun Roggy now. <laughs> I don't know if you remember... Sorry for the highfalutin cultural reference, but do you remember Fun Bobby on Friends? Yeah, there, there was. There, <laughs> uh, well, there was a slightly sinister uh, reason for his um, his uh, ex exuberant. Was there a Friends episode called the one about the one about Primoz Roglic, or maybe that will? <laughs> Not yet. No, <laughs> if it's if it's revived, maybe that will happen. But those of a certain generation will remember Fun Bobby, Fun Roggy. How was Fun Roggy this morning? Well, he was pretty pretty fun he's becoming almost um i would say flippant in in his morning interviews let's hear what he had to say about today's stage shall we just uh, going through without uh, crashes and this shit uh, i think uh, that's a big save enough uh, so that should be the main goal so chaps he was just this morning primos just looking forward to avoiding well as he said that shit He's just playing with you at this point. Yeah, just referring to everything in cycling that's not basically him out sprinting someone at the top of a very steep climb to take 10 bonus seconds. Everything else, as far as he's concerned, I get the sense is just, you know, well, as, as he said, shit. You're a big ball of fur and he's a cat. That's the, the mental image I have. Anyway, moving on to the stage, there was a bit of drama and excitement in the last couple of kilometres, as you said. A fantastic Dekunic quick step lead out a perfect lead out apart from the fact that they were they're missing their sprinter and it looked as if it was a real uh, miscommunication and, and a real uh, we, we spoke yesterday didn't we about the bike exchange lead out being almost perfect but perhaps not being quite fast enough to prevent that late attack from Jens Kukulera and uh, Magnus Court today looked almost too fast um, and it caused those splits behind Matthew Trenton latched onto the back of it and looked as if he might have the last laugh but it was almost a sprint in the end between two not pure sprinters both fast riders but certainly not pure sprinters and and it was a fast kind of strong man's finish which Seneschal just edged out i suppose the thing to say before we talk about the sprint itself rich and and the the last one of those splits which eventually well it reduced the the, the group contesting the victory, well, it was four riders, wasn't it? But it was really only two, Seneschal and Trenton, who were there to sprint. But before that, there had been a couple of splits, one of which had Egan Bernal on the, on the right side and Primoz Roglic and the other GC contenders on the wrong side. They were cut adrift and Bernal did extremely well to, to be in that, well, that, that little group that just... Um, detached itself due to the the pressure being put on by the Koenig quick step and Tom Pidcock took a lot of credit from that deservedly um, because he was the one piloting Egan Bernal and actually he shed quite a bit of light on what was happening in general um, in those last few kilometers when we spoke to him after the finish. Yeah that was a messy finish yeah Dylan crashed heavily yesterday so he was he's kind of the big powerhouse in the team when it comes to the finishes like that. You know, and the quick step guys going around the corners fast. I was doing the wheel around every corner. Yeah, I don't trust these Spanish roads at all. They're very slippy. I thought maybe it might be better to lose a bit of time than take me and Egan out. So, uh, but yeah, it was. Uh, we weren't expecting that, honestly. Yeah, when these guys go on the flats, they can go, you know. And uh, yeah, and they're flapping in the wheels trying to keep up. Overhead, they look like pretty wide roads. Was was it just the speed? And as you say how well the quick step guys were taking those corners that caused the splits because there were, there were quite a few splits in the end. Yeah, we certainly weren't expecting it, that to happen. And yeah, like I said, the roads, you know, they just look really slick and I think that kind of puts a lot of people off. But yeah, the quick step guys were uh, yeah, giving it full beans. The big question though, Daniel, is what did happen to Fabio Jakobsen? Because right at the crucial moment, he sat up, he was looking down at his bike. Conflicting reports suggested it might have been a puncture or perhaps he just didn't have the legs to follow the wheels uh, what's the situation has anything come out in the wash 
Well, it seems to be um, well, there seems to be still some confusion because some of the Dakota Quick Step riders, including the stage winner Florian Seneschal, thought that Jakobsen had a puncture or some kind of mechanical. Jakobsen himself said in the mix zone uh, this afternoon or after the stage that he just didn't have the legs which you know is not that surprising because I think a lot of riders were really struggling well as we heard from Pidcock there he said he was flapping around and um, he was perfectly placed so I think some of the riders further back simply couldn't follow the pace and you know, we, we've talked about Seneschal and what a talent he is before, um, particularly on the flat and particularly looking um, well, looking ahead to Paris-Roubaix in, in a couple of weeks, but looking at past Paris-Roubaix as well. But Bert van uh, Lerberger as well is really being earmarked as the next big lead-out man at the Koenig Quickstep. He's he's the heir apparent, really, to Michael Morku, uh, their, their number one lead-out man. And you could you got a glimpse today, I think, of, of how good... Van Lerberg could become in that finale today and in fact chaps we we caught up with Van Lerberger after the finish and also a rider who very narrowly missed out yesterday didn't he uh, Matteo Trentin was second today he looked to be in the perfect position but well as you'll hear he had also um, had to do quite a lot of work to sort of patch up or glue together some of those gaps in the finale and it ended up costing him. 1.5 to go, we hear on the radio, uh, I, Fabio saying, Florian, you need to do the sprint. And it was a little bit uh, I, shit for us because we were already a long way on the head. So lucky Stevie did a, a long uh, pull up, uh, pull out. And uh, then I was just a bit of waiting, 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 and then trying to give uh, Florian the speed he needed. And But then the guy from Alpecin went 400 to go or something, so it was... But Tom Pidcock said your speed was just amazing in those last few kilometres. Was it a finish where you thought that you could maybe create splits in the peloton and really put people out of the back before the last kilometre? Actually, I think everybody knew uh, the, the first finish line was at 3.2 with all the corners. And if you're there in the head and you're with a complete team, you can really line it up. And it makes uh, the sprint much easier. If you're in 20th position, you're already after the corners. And we always went the corners easy, speed it up, corners easy, speed it up. And then you can line up the bunch and uh, then it's quite easier than the former sprints were all big roads, hectic, casino a block. And now it was uh, like uh, we are used to in uh, Belgium, France. And so, yes. He made a really good sprint, actually. On my side, I actually lost too many, too many meters and I had to use too much power out of every roundabout. I wasn't... I wasn't super confident and they were really confident and you could see I was living like between 5 and 10 meters every single time and also 3.5 to go when I came in the corner uh, Pitcock misjudged the corner, he was in front of me so at the end it was, I was just behind them but there were a big gap of 25 meters or so and it took me quite, quite a good effort to close it down and you know, like I'm getting closer to win something finally today could be a good day but as I explained to you it wasn't so I mean, I was there in the climb, I was here in the sprint. Actually, it's the first sprint I can do from a long time. And being second is not too bad, actually. My plan was perfectly executed, except for the corners. <laughs> well, as you can hear, chaps, there, Trentin was pretty phlegmatic at the finish. He was pretty uh, happy, really, with the way he's riding generally. And, um, well, the Koenig Quickstep were absolutely thrilled and thrilled with Seneschal because, as I said, he's a rider that they have had high hopes for in Paris-Roubaix for a few years now since he joined the team but he's not had it all his way at the Koenig Quickstep since he joined the team um, a couple of years ago he was left out of the Tour of Flanders team and I, you know we've talked before about Patrick Lefebvre being extremely clumsy and sometimes completely beyond the pale in his sort of public utterances about his riders, other teams' riders, and so forth. But I believe Lefebvre was pretty, had some pretty harsh words for Seneschal a couple of years ago when he left him out of the Tour of Flanders team or when Seneschal was left out, you know, about his weight particularly and, and he, the likelihood of him being useful on, on the climbs in Flanders. And Seneschal said he took it badly at first, but then he actually went away and well, used it as motivation, really, and really worked on his climbing. He also said that when his press conference this afternoon, this evening, he said he'd worked really hard this summer and on his sprinting as well. 
and I think we saw that today and obviously well he's got his big objective of the season still coming up as I mentioned um, Paris Bay just a few weeks away and this is a race that he's dreamed about throughout his life he's from the the region where Paris Bay finishes up there near Calais uh, Lille that neck of the woods and you would think um, will come out of the Vuelta with excellent form and could well be one of the favourites and not just my sort of sleeper pick for Paris Bay this year well, one thing, Daniel, last year, obviously, the, some a lot more of the classics were held in a very late season uh, slot. And Seneschal was second to Mads Pedersen in Gent Wevelgem, wasn't he? And third that day was Matteo Trentin. So uh, maybe a, 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 a slight uh, pattern emerging there. Perhaps we'll see Seneschal and Trentin going head to head in the velodrome in Roubaix in a few weeks time. This is a bit off topic, chaps, but here's a question for you. Who is the defending Paris-Roubaix champion? the 2019 winner <laughs> yeah but who is it i can't remember it's philip gilbert oh, of course it is. which is astonishing astonishing really wow. it seems like a different generation ago also on seneschal chaps um, for those who didn't hear our episode when jacobson took his first stage win of the of this year's welter um seneschal was the guy who well he was the first guy on the scene when jacobson had his terrible terrible crash in the tour of poland last year and as we said then he's sort of credited by jacobson's family with saving his life you know the the way he put jacobson in a more comfortable position as he was sort of lying prostrate uh, next to the finish line then in poland so there's a sort of poignancy as well about him winning today when jacobson couldn't sprint and and as i said then i think those two are, are very very close now so much so that well seneschal says they their destinies will be forever linked um, and they were in a perverse kind of way today, weren't they? And I mean, it's worth saying that, you know, the kind of quick step when they lost, when they realised they'd lost their, their sprinter, um, they did exactly the right thing, didn't they? They just switched switched their plans immediately. That That's how it looks like anyway. I mean, they they, they were committed to the, the lead out. They just changed the identity of the sprinter. Uh, and it was, it was obviously the right thing to do. And they are a team who are just able to... to to, to thrive in all kinds of situations through, I don't know, quick thinking, but perfect execution of a lead out that they didn't obviously want to go to waste. And uh, the uh, the winner was was not the rider that we expected. And the closeness of that relationship, Rich, between Seneschal and Jakobsen, who knows whether it might have taken Jakobsen a split second longer to relay the message or mm. he'd, he'd held on, he perhaps would have tried to hold on a little bit longer if it wasn't, you know, his very close friend, but he obviously did relay the message if, if that was indeed the case that he couldn't follow or didn't feel good. He relayed it, um, well, at, at the perfect moment, didn't he? Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, who I think is in Germany at the moment, at the, the Tour of Germany. But he's interrupting our Vuelta coverage to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Beer 52. Now, you can get a free case of eight craft beers from Beer 52 by going to beer52.com forward slash cycle. All you have to do is cover the postage of £5.95 and your um your crate of beer will be delivered to your door along with the magazine ferment and a couple of snacks and you have taken delivery of just such a case recently Lionel I have indeed this month's theme is Chicago beers from Illinois in the United States and uh, the one I've got here is called Cosmo Pale Ale from Noon Whistle Brewery and this is right up my street this is the uh, the perfect kind of beer for me it's um you know it's not it's not sort of overpoweringly hoppy it's uh, just a, a very pleasant um very pleasant pale ale and the good thing about beer 52 is that you can customize the sorts of beers that you prefer um and they will send you you know if you don't like stouts or you don't like particular types of beers then you can uh, you know cross those off the list and and your your case will be tailored to your taste well beer 52 is the world's largest beer club with over 170,000 active members each month the members are sent their case of beer with a different theme as you said lionel each month comes with the magazine and snacks if you don't like dark beer you can choose a light option or vice versa you can also pause or cancel your membership at any time 
Go to beer52.com forward slash cycle and pay £5.95 postage to get all of this now. That's B-E-E-R, the number is 5 and 2.com forward slash cycle. Un peu de tout, un peu de tout. Voilà, j'ai manqué de réussite, j'ai manqué de... De, de confiance, de jugement de course, uh, il voilà, y a plein de choses qui font que, que ça n'a pas marché. Well, that sounded like my neighbour, Daniel. Well, I was expecting you, Richard, then to ask who was that, and I was going to, I was going to say it was your neighbour. <laughs> I recognise Arnaud Demar's voice anywhere, but we didn't recognise him anywhere at the finish, did we? In fact, Seneschal at the finish said that he was expecting Demar to appear at any moment, and and he didn't. In fact, he was he was nowhere at all. He's lost his lead out man, Jacopo Guarnieri. And had he been up there, you know, today was a day where it wasn't a, a complicated sprint there. And if he'd been there with those two, you'd imagine him winning against Seneschal and Trentin. But his his confidence is gone, isn't it? Yeah, and that's what he said to me this morning. I spoke to him about what hadn't been working so far at this Vuelta España. It's been a bit of a disaster, um, as has much of the season, to be honest, for Demar and his lead-out train. He said that it's a combination of things, you know, he feels that he needs to get stronger, although he, he felt that he was improving, the way he'd, he'd survived the, the climbs thus far had given him cause for optimism, but there was a, a bit of luck involved as well, and just confidence. Um, he was so he was quite bullish, he was bullish even though he didn't have his main lead-out man, Jacopo Guarnieri, who abandoned few days ago, but he was really nowhere um, in sight, particularly when those splits happened. But a sprinter who has been up there, almost escaping our notice in a way. I mean, there's one or two, Alberto Dainese again up there in third. But another rider who's been there or thereabouts in a lot of the sprints, an Israeli rider from Israel startup nation, Itamar Einhorn. And you spoke to him at the start today, Daniel. I did, Richard. Let's hear from him, shall we? Well, Itamar, tell, tell me a bit about where you're from, because most people know in Israel, they know Tel Aviv and they know Jerusalem. And you, it seems like you're from between the two. I'm uh, from Modi'in. It's a pretty new city. Only 25 years ago, there was nothing there. And now it's a pretty big city for Israel. And uh, it's just between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And you've already made history a few times in your career. I think you were the first Israeli to get a podium finish in a UCI race in Colombia a couple of years ago. Tell me about your first Grand Tour so far. What have been, well, I think you've surprised a few people, but what have been the big surprises for you about this welter? Until now, I. I'm surprised uh, myself uh, that I can uh, really, I can really be a part of this race and not only survive it. Uh, I, I didn't really surprise myself, but it's like it's a good experience. Um, from these sprint stages, I had some bad luck in the start with uh, the first stage of the sprint. I had some uh, bad positioning, and the second stage of the sprint that I. I went for the sprint, I crashed, and the third stage I went for the sprint, finally I had uh, some good uh, time and good legs, and I uh, did this top five, and it was not bad for me, but I expect more, and I think today can be really good, really, really good option to do more than that. And you mentioned the crash, I understand you hurt your chest. Yeah, I have a little pain in my chest, Not nothing too serious, and uh, I hope it will uh, get over in the next few days. And Itamar, it's been a brutally hot Vuelta, but I guess you're used to hot temperatures. Um, but tell me, how how bad has it got for you in the mountains at times? Um, have you had any really, really hard moments in the mountains yet? I had hard moments, but actually I didn't feel that the heat is the, the reason. <laughs> The heat is okay, everybody is suffering from the heat and I know how to cool myself. I had some hard time in the mountain because yes, like every sprinter, it's uh, it's harder to carry on the extra weight in the climbs, especially these long ones. But it's it's okay. We can uh, survive it. And I guess you've got a bit more of an idea about your potential as a world tour sprinter now. Where do you see yourself in two or three years? I hope to have some uh, nice world tour wins and uh, in two two three years to be one of the leaders uh, sprinters in the world to put Israel on the map and. Uh, continue from there and last thing what's the main thing you have to improve in order to do that as far as you're concerned are you fast enough do you have the watts is it about positioning and finding your way around sprints or do you need to get stronger as well 
Uh, I think I have good numbers and good speed for the sprint. Of course, it's about positioning and a little bit and a lot about experience. So this year I didn't race so much because in the beginning of the year I had an injury in my knee. And uh, actually this uh, Vuelta is only my third race with the team uh, this year. So I'm, uh, I'm missing a little bit of uh, just race experience for this year but I'm still be able to, to fight for the position and to fight for the sprint. So I think it's, uh, it's on the good way and uh, we will do it. Well, Chaps, I don't know about you, but I've been quite impressed with Itamar Einhorn um, so far in this Vuelta España. Einhorn, incidentally, means unicorn in German. I can see a, a, quite an unflattering nickname on the horizon for old Itamar. <laughs> He is 23 years old, um, obviously a, you know, a, a, a strong sprinter, second year with Israel Startup Nation. He hasn't raced much this season at all and made a very late start to the season. I don't know if he was out with injury or there was some problem there because he raced quite a lot last year. But at this Vuelta, he's been up there. I mean, he was fifth last week on stage eight and seventh uh, today. Very promising results, really. Yes, Rich, as you say, promising. And as you can hear there, he's pretty ambitious, you know, sees himself winning... Um, bunch sprints in world tour races uh, a couple of years from now and you know he's only 23 he, he's a sh kind of a, a fairly short um, stocky sort of build um, a sprinter more in the, the Mark Cavendish mold than the say Fabio Jakobsen mold but he he's impressed a few other riders at this what last Spain they've remarked on you know what a uh, a fast jump he seems to have and well the team obviously believe in him um, for for understandable reasons um, he's probably the the best Israeli hope at the moment of, of scoring results scoring prestigious results at the highest level I think they've got some riders who are improving certainly Guy Niv and, and a couple of others um, they're not out of the or out of their depth in races like the Vuelta but I think Einhorn um, yeah I, I could see him winning something if not a world tour race then maybe a, a 2.1 um, a, a stage in a 2.1 race or a 1.1 race in the not too in the not too distant future science in sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the vuelta España. science in sport fueled by science Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast. If you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, head over to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25. It sounds like it's all kicking off over there, Daniel. What's going on? There is a team of waiters who are well they're laying out their strategy for what is the today's what seems to be today's queen stage as far as they're concerned i think they've probably got a, they've got a wedding arriving here later and there's um yeah very very animated discussions going on about how best to array the the tables outside this restaurant cafeteria where i'm sitting but um yeah it's quite it's all becoming quite animated very lively, very lively sounding. And, well, someone who's very animated is, is Jack Haig, isn't he? That was a good link. I mean, he is a very animated uh, chap. Not not the sort of uh, lounge lizard jazz maestro that he was being painted as earlier. Although he, he, is a, he is a former cafe owner, isn't he, in Andorra? He briefly owned the, the cafe that's that was owned by Lee Howard before him. But anyway, Jack Haig is here at this uh, Vuelta in a really strong position. I listened back today to an interview I did with Rolf Aldag at the at the Tour de France after he'd crashed out there and you know Aldag we played that in our stage eight podcast from the Tour de France if anyone wants, wants to go back and listen but Aldag was so um impressed by Haig over just the first few days of the tour and his leadership qualities um he w had been struck by how serious he was how seriously taken that leadership role and how effective he'd been in that role in in the few days it was in he'd started the tour let's not forget really really strongly coming into the vuelta recovering from the injury the the surgery that he had the time off the bike time away from racing he he's ridden into the race a bit more gradually but that that perhaps augurs well you know they, they came in barring victorious with Mikel landa as their out and out leader i saw him on bottle duty today so um, things have really changed in that team, it seems. And, well, you've been speaking to him a lot, Daniel. 
Yes, I have Rich. Uh, Jack Hay, of course, Australian, 27 years old, uh, joined Bahrain Victorious after five years, I think, at Mitchelton Scott in the closed season. And, well, he's currently, chaps, he's sixth on general classification, but he's he's only just over two minutes down on what we think of as the real lead, the, the virtual lead of this Vuelta España, um, Primoz Roglic. As you say, we've spoken to him a lot at this Vuelta a España, but um, well, we thought we'd give the listeners a little bit more background on who Jack Haig is and exactly what he's hoping to achieve in the rest of this Vuelta a España. So we're going to hear now from Jack Haig himself, Michael Matthews, you're going to hear from first, his compatriot and um, director sportif at Bahrain Victorious, Gorad Stangley, and also Nick Schultz, his former teammate in Mitchelton Scott. It's unfortunate what happened to him, the Tour de France, um, crashing on that stage three or four. Um, I think he also could have done an amazing result there. And yeah, to come back and bounce back after missing the Olympics and missing the, the Tour de France to come here and be riding the way he is, I think it's, um, it's great for Aussie cycling. It just kind of happened that we moved from the state of Queensland in the north of Australia to Victoria. And when we moved to the town called Bendigo, we were looking for opportunities for myself and my sister to get involved in the community. And one of the things that the Bendigo community had was a mountain bike club. And I started off cycling in the mountain bike scene. I represented Australia in junior world championships and my first year under 23 world championships on the mountain bike. And uh, that's how I kind of got into cycling, through mountain biking. And I still follow mountain biking a lot and love it a lot. And I do it whenever I can back in Andorra. Basically, I spent uh, my first year under 23 racing in America on the mountain bikes. And I did world championships later that year in Europe. And then I came back to Australia, basically having spent all my money and... Uh, was kind of looking for opportunities and I started racing on the road and then I did one season on the road in Australia and it kind of uh, snowballed from there to where I am now. Well, Gorad, this has been a fantastic welter for Jack Cake um, so far. I just want you to take me back a few months to when you guys were thinking about, talking about signing him. When he came to the team, for me, he was not a new rider because I, I know him a few years because he was progressing well, uh, having uh, constant results. And for sure for us, he was a talented rider. That was the reason we tried so hard to have him in the team. It's a bit of an interesting one because a lot of my conversations were actually with uh, Rod Ellingworth. Oh, all my conversations were with Rod Ellingworth. And uh, he's obviously not here anymore and back with uh, Ineos. The contract I signed and everything we spoke about was kind of with him. It's changed a little bit, but uh, I'm actually very happy with uh, where I am at the moment. I'm really happy with the team. It was definitely a, a tough first couple of months re readjusting, but uh, now I feel really comfortable here and to have the opportunities I've had so far this year has been pretty amazing. Like I f still find it pretty phenomenal that I can say the team backed me for the Tour de France. Like it's a pretty rare opportunity to get to say you had the backing of a team going to the world's biggest race. Now being here and also having good opportunities, it's uh, really special. Was there a moment, has there been a moment in the last two or three years that's been a bit of a fork in the road where you thought, well, I can't, I can't spend too much longer as a domestique working for other guys. I really need to give this a go and see how far I can, can go on my own. No, absolutely. Um, me and Adam Yates were actually talking in the start of this race about how much both of us enjoyed our time at Mitchelton, but also that both of us were ready to move on and try find some uh, different opportunities. Have a change. Change is always good, and um, it was definitely after five years at Mitchelton I was ready. New opportunities, whether that was leadership opportunities or just new learning opportunities from other management, other staff, different trainers, everything like this. I mean, he is not explosive like Roglic, but if we look generally, he's not suffering with the explosive kind of finishes like yesterday. What's also positive looking forward is that he's 
very good on time trial. I was just going to ask you, Nick, about a bit about Jack. Hey, obviously he's been in this, well, been your team a long time, kind of waiting for his opportunity. Are you surprised at the extent to which he's really grasped that opportunity, or did you think that he was really ready to take that? Yeah, I'm not surprised at all, actually. Jack's always been a super hard worker. He does all the really small details and always has. And I don't think it's a, a big sacrifice for him. He's just so professional and it comes easily to him. This was always going to happen and it was only a matter of time. And I actually think he'll hold rock solid till the end and uh, fight for a podium. Uh, maybe it's a better question to ask my directors and my teammates, but I hope I have the head for it, that's for sure. I think you do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, notable there to hear Jack Haig mentioning that Rod Ellingworth was instrumental in signing him for Bahrain. Rod Ellingworth identified Haig as one of the people to bring in for their Grand Tour team um, as he was looking to sort of, uh, you know, take the team on to the next level. And then, of course, Ellingworth left uh, quite suddenly, I guess, at the end of last year and went back to Ineos Grenadiers. And uh, I gather Ellingworth, you know, felt pretty bad about that for the people who he specifically recruited to the team Haig being one of those and and obviously called up and and explained that he was he was going and and that may well have accounted for you know the 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 tricky couple of months at the start of the year or an adjustment to a new team and adjusting to a new team without the person that had specifically recruited him and must have been unsettling but you know we're now at the, the end of the Grand Tour racing season and he's having an absolute cracker, isn't he? And the next couple of days will tell us an awful lot about whether um, he can finish in the top five overall when the race finishes a week on Sunday. Yeah, we heard Gerard Stangley there talk about how, well, he, he's not particularly explosive compared to Primoz Roglic, but he certainly holds his own on finishes like the one we saw the other day at Valdepeñas de Jaén. I mean, if I had a reservation about Jack Haig prior to this season and I think you know the, the people at Mitchelton Scott had said this before Matt White has maybe said this before to us that um, that was maybe a little bit of a, a weakness um, the, the, the sort of short explosive steep climbs um, that's certainly not evident at the moment is it and I expect him to go well um, even well, on the very steep stuff in Asturias, when we get to El, El, El uh, Gamoniteiro, the, the big sort of queen stage that everyone's looking forward to. But um, I, th- I, I don't think he'll risk everything to try to win this Vuelta Espanol, although he's in a, a position to, to have a good go at Roglic. I think he's pretty happy where he is at the moment. And fourth would be a, a, a massive first step in this sort of new career, new journey that he's embarking on as a, as a GC leader. I mean, based on how Landa's gone in this Vuelta España, you, you would have to say that Haig could become the, the main man, not only in this Vuelta for the team, but um, going forward in coming seasons, he could be their leader at the, the Tour de France for a good couple of years to come. He started the tour, you know, fourth at Landerneau, which was a proper sprint up quite a tough climb, and then tenth at Mur de Bretagne, which are perhaps not results I would have I would have thought him capable of. Um, and I think once we get into some of the climbs next week, they should suit him be- even better. So um, I, I'm quite excited to see what Jack what Jack Haig does, especially because I suspect that. His form here is probably taking him by surprise a little bit, given the tour was such a focus for him and that he's recovering from that that injury sustained there um, and has really ridden into things here at the Vuelta. So he's got some momentum behind him as well. The, the way he's ridden this Vuelta reminds me of something you said a couple of days ago, Rich, the phenomenon of, I can't remember who it was you were referring to, it was Guillaume Martin, I think, you know, going backwards in order to get into the GC fight because that's kind of what Haig has um, done in this Vuelta, isn't it? Because at Picon Blanco, the first sort of GC sort out, he was kind of average, really, 43rd on the stage and didn't pull up any trees particularly at Cuyera the next time the the GC was sorted out and then it was a getting in the big break to uh where was that stage Danny was it Balcon de Alicante the um the the stage that Stora won and and Haig was in in the big move and and gained quite a lot of time to move himself right back into the GC and you wonder it's it's impossible to answer this question but had he ridden a kind of a standard GC race from the start would he be in the position he's in now uh, particularly when you consider 
um, that of Bahrain Victorious's uh, GC hopes, you know, he wouldn't have been the number one at the start of the welter, would he? I thought it was interesting as well, chaps, to hear Nick Schultz talk there about how much Jack Haig relishes the hard work and the sort of pursuit of, of marginal gains that we talk so much about now and which is such a huge well which are such a huge part of being a GC rider and uh, you know we get the sense and we, we touched on this earlier in the week particularly in relation to Fabio Aru and you know I did my kilometer zero on Aru and his retirement and we talked a lot in that about the the increasing stresses on GC riders in particular I mean this issue of, of weight control seems to be a huge problem for GC riders, one that causes so much anguish in, and, and some of them deal with it better than others or have an easier relationship with um, than others with their weight and diet but y- you really have to relish all of that and it sounds like Jack Haig doesn't feel that it's uh, it's too much of a burden you know looking for the 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 extra advantages whether it's um, aerodynamics going to altitude spending a lot of time at altitude or his diet and so on and so forth and um, you know Rich you said that Rolf Aldog absolutely raved about him well he to me Jack Haig would be the archetypal Rolf Aldog rider because that's how Rolf Aldog is wired as well isn't it I mean he's um, he's a great communicator, as Jack Haig seems to be, and he's mm. someone who who really relishes that pursuit of, of excellence in in every dimension of cycling. Well, let's watch this space over the next uh, few days. What are we looking ahead to tomorrow, Daniel? Two really difficult stages. Tomorrow we've got this really interesting looking stage again in Extremadura to a, a little known um, mountain, well, Sierra mountain range. Um, well, the stage finishes at Pico Villercas and it's 1,580 metres above sea level, never been climbed before by the, the Vuelta. The race is actually kind of going up both sides of this climb tomorrow. The, f- the first ascent is after where well, it tops out 97 kilometres into the stage, and then it will go up the other side at the finish, so after 165 kilometres, the stage finishes on top of this, um, this hotly anticipated climb um, not many riders in the field will know much about it at all um, i know that primoz roglic doesn't know anything about it because he told us this morning in the second installment um, of what will be today's tonight's daily rog here's what he said this morning nothing again huh? <laughs> i don't know I, I don't yeah i don't know nothing i don't know the climbs are here so uh, yeah everything is new and uh yeah, hopefully I will have legs huh? that uh, I can I can come on the top of this uh, goat path. So Rog doesn't know the goat paths um, that await him in the, the final week of the world. He's he knows nothing, chaps. Rog knows nothing. Let's see if he's still fun Roggy tomorrow evening, shall well, we? Well, just on that, Rich, I mean, I think we should start naming our episodes uh, the same way Friends episodes were named. You know, tomorrow's episode will be the one where Roglic won the time bonus. <laughs> the one, the one. Well, that doesn't that doesn't really narrow it down, does it? Um, <laughs> That's like old yeah. Lassie episodes. That's re- repeated every three days. That one. <laughs> Daniel mentioned his Fabio Aru uh, Kilometer Zero, which came out yesterday. We released another one today. We're over-delivering with Kilometer Zeros. Today's was Welta Skelter, and it was uh, a chat with Tim Moore, uh, a very comic writer, about his retracing of the 1941 Vuelta. He's a comic writer, but actually, this is quite a serious book because um, he's following in the wheel marks of the winner of that race, the... Uh, the Tour of a Nation Reborn, as Franco and his followers called it. The winner was Julian Berendero, quite a complex character who we learn about through the book. Um, uh, you know, he, he follows the, the same route as 41. What's interesting, you mentioned the Vuelta's ability to find new climbs all the time, Daniel. And what was apparent then was, was how few climbs it actually did. Um, that wasn't its USP at the time to... to, to discover all these new climbs in fact didn't do very many mountains at all although there were there were a few but it certainly wasn't seeking out all these uh, climbs that have been such a feature of the Vuelta over the last few years so that is the latest episode of Kilometer Zero and there will be more next week including more from our audio diarists uh, James Knox, Pavel Sivakov and John Bao. Well chaps can I add a, f- a final guess? Yeah gastronomic uh, footnote chaps I did get to try the Flamenquin Cordobes last night we talked about these sort of batons which were like cachopo but rolled up like cordon bleu 
pork um, rolled up like a newspaper you'd swat a fly with or you'd fend off a burglar with one of these flamenquines cordobeses quite impressed quite impressed not really necessarily my thing fried meat in breadcrumbs but uh, quite enjoyed it more generally uh, Cordoba was ab absolutely sensational we were lucky enough to stay there last night and I would recommend it to anyone visiting Andalucía um, the, the highlights being the Mesquita which we talked about the Grand Mosque which has now become the cathedral of the city and also the Roman Bridge uh, I ran over the Roman Bridge this morning um, a really ancient bridge built I think in 1st century BC and then restored reconstructed including by the Moors um, after their um, conquest of Andalusia in, this, in the 8th century. So uh, Cordoba, um, not to be missed if you're in the south of Spain. They get everywhere, don't they, the Moors? Oh yes, we are everywhere. We Should should we play out with, um, with the latest um, musical offering from Gavin Francis, who, who composed a very memorable song about Tadej Pogacar at the Tour de France? He's, he's, he's been at it again. Roglification. So we play out with that and reconvene tomorrow night. Inspired thanks, by Gavin. the red hot chili peppers. Chili peppers, certainly inspired by, yeah. Uh, thanks very much, Daniel. Thank you, chaps. Thank you, Lionel. Cheers, guys. Movie star guys from Spain will try to steal your classification. An Ineos team of Colombian dreams want to keep your concentration. And if you want these kinds of dreams, it's just roglification. the banks of the boys from Yumbo Visma, riding away on a diamond day of charm and bright charisma. It's understood that the peloton would just see